This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi. Before we begin, I want to recommend a new history podcast that's just arrived on the scene. It tells the story of a famous people, a nation of warriors and traders who appeared one day in ancient Denmark and then made their mark on the old world and the new. Allow me to introduce the History of Vikings podcast. From the first origins of the Vikings and their sudden appearance at Lindisfarne, through the age of heroes and gods, and even into the nitty-gritty of Viking battle, raiders, shield maidens, Asgardian gods and longboats, it's all there in great depth and great detail. The History of Vikings podcast by Noah Tetzner. Check it out at thehistoryofvikings.com on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. I recommend it. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 98, Young Bull Appearing in Memphis. In this episode, we explore the deeds of the Crown Prince Tutmos and also of his sister, the little-known but curious Seat Amun. This episode is brought to you by Megan Townsend, Blair Taylor, and Michael Nooner, in gratitude for their donation to the podcast. Thank you very kindly, folks. I have lit incense to the Apis Bull. May he make all your endeavors fruitful and nourish your families. To everyone listening, please enjoy the story. The year was 1385 BCE. It was regnal year 15 under the majesty of Amunhotep III, king of Egypt. The land was at peace, prosperity reigned, and throughout the country, the many servants of Pharaoh were living their lives undisturbed by any evil. It has been four years since we last checked in with Amunhotep. Since his eventful year 11, the king had settled into a predictable rhythm of life. As ruler of the two lands, he oversaw governance and commanded projects. As the highest priest, he made offerings to the gods and satisfied them with his worship. Finally, as a husband and father, he managed the affairs of his household and saw to it that his family were provided with their needs. It was a busy life, but it was starting to quieten down. Amunhotep's first decade in power was eventful, but after year 11, the records go silent for quite a long time. We may be missing a great deal of material, but it's possible that the initial flurry of activity, building projects, hunting trips, wars, etc., now fell into the background a bit. Every major project was already underway, and nothing new was started. This leaves us a gap, a blank space between regnal year 12 and year 20. What to do? Fortunately, our records are not totally empty. We are able to fill in this gap by reconstructing the lives of two people in particular. Firstly, the king's son, Tutmos, seems to have matured around this time, and we can observe his activities through a few tantalizing references. Secondly, the king's daughter, Sit Amun, 
probably came of age as well, and we can catch a glimpse of her thanks to some lucky finds. So in 1385 BCE, we can start to look at the lives of the royal children, the next generation destined to inherit the world. Allow me to introduce the prince and princess. In 1385 BCE, the royal city of Memphis was quiet. The country was peaceful, and the city itself carried on the daily rhythms of life. People planted fields, fashioned pots, wove linen, and built houses. In the elite quarters, scribes counted and copied, and overseers managed the movement of goods. In the temples, priests worked in rituals, offerings, and the preparation of festivals. The largest temple of Memphis was that of Ptah. Ptah, south of his wall, was the patron of the great royal city. For more than 1500 years, Ptah had watched over Memphis and protected its people. His priesthood was among the oldest in the land, and certainly the most prestigious. From all over Egypt, elite boys would come to Ptah's temple to learn the ways of the god. There were many acolytes, but for our purposes, one boy stood out in particular. His name was Jehuti Mesu, although we know him better as Tutmos. Tutmos was about 13 years old, still a boy, but beginning to learn the skills that he would need as a man. As part of his growth, he was taking instructions in the rites and traditions of the great temple. Offerings, liturgies, and histories, he was being immersed in the religious life of his people. Of course, as the son of a pharaoh, Tutmos did this in a unique manner. He had a lot more responsibility right off the bat, and over time he rose to much grander heights than your average acolyte could expect. To begin with, this young man was given a most important role. Tutmos was made a Sem priest. The Sem priest was Egypt's equivalent of a celebrant, a religious official who worked mainly with funerals. The Sem priest served in rituals and ceremonies associated with the dead, and their responsibilities are surprisingly well documented. Among other things, it was the Sem priest who was responsible for the famous opening of the mouth. So Tutmos, as a Sem, would have been very active in the lives and deaths of people around him. Inevitably, this connected him with the powerful. Prince Tutmos's first great test may have come when his superior in the temple, the high priest, died. Sometime around 1385, the chief priest of Ptah slipped off the mortal coil and journeyed into the west. Naturally, he now required a funeral, and it's possible that Prince Tutmos acted as the Sem priest for the ceremonies which now followed. The high priest was named Ptah Mose, or Born of Ptah. An auspicious name for a priest, he came from an illustrious family. Ptah Mose's father had been vizier, and about 20 years later, his son, Pachem Netcher, would follow him as the high priest. It was one of those families, the wealthy, well-connected nobility, who monopolized high offices and wielded great influence at the Egyptian court. Well, that family had now lost a son. One day, a funeral procession made its way into the necropolis west of the city of Memphis. They trod a well-worn path west of the city, following the dirt track which led into the desert towards the sepulchres. The procession was elaborate, cattle at the front for sacrifice, then men hauling on ropes pulling the coffin, then the Sem priest Tutmos, 
Finally, the mummy itself rode in its coffin on top of a sled that was pulled by the men ahead. At the rear, porters carried the grave goods, and mourners wailed in exaggerated grief. The dead man's coffin was probably a lavish piece. Elite containers of this period tend to be made of costly wood with bands of gold crisscrossing the body. Between those bands, black resin protects the wood and preserves the container. Then at the top, a golden mask and necklace protect the head and the chest. Coffins of this time period are an unusual sight. They're not as colourful as those of previous generations, and they're far less refined than those of later times. Still, they're quite lovely, and you'll find pictures of a contemporary piece on the website. When the funeral procession arrived at the tomb, Tatmos and the porters set the coffin up beside the monument's doorway. This was the entrance to a small chapel, a stone structure on top of the underground tomb. At this place of worship, a statue of the deceased would be erected for offerings, and the building as a whole would protect the hidden chambers below. The coffin rested against the outer wall of the chapel. Its golden bands shone brightly in the sun, and the deep black resin gleamed with a dark reflection. The container was ready for the rituals. Now, it was the priest's job to empower it. Tutmos, as Sem priest, now stepped forward. He was a sight to behold, body shaved smooth and hairless in purification. He had rubbed incense on his limbs to make them pleasing to the gods. His clothing was pristine. He wore a spotless white kilt, bleached as bright as it could be. His chest was bare for now, and his limbs glittered with golden bracelets. He was an ornate figure, sweet-scented and ready for worship. The ritual could begin. To perform the opening of the mouth, Tutmos would prepare tools and purify himself. When he was ready, he approached the coffin, raised his left hand, and extended his little finger. He placed that finger to the lips of the mummy, pressing it at the point where the lips meet. Doing so, he symbolically parted the mouth and allowed the breath of the dead to flow once more. As he did this, Tutmos recited the following formula, quote, I have come as your embracer. I am Horus. I have pressed your mouth for you. I am your son whom you love. End quote. Tutmos touched the lips and the statue's mouth was opened. Now the deceased could receive his offerings, and the priests brought out a meal for the satisfaction of the soul. They offered meat, also bread, beer, and vegetables, a balanced diet for the soul of the dead. As they did this, they recited a formula which went something like this, quote, You live in the afterlife as a god, furnished with bread, furnished with beer, furnished with cool water. It is granted that four legs will come to thee, and selected portions of meat are brought. The best of the offering table is given. All this for the Osiris, the deceased. End quote. At this point, Tutmos and his colleagues performed a number of rituals connected with the story of Osiris himself. In the main ritual, Tutmos and his colleagues came together as a group called the Followers of Horus. They were the guardians of Osiris, the protectors of his body, and they defended themselves against another group called the Followers of Seth. Seth had attempted to destroy Osiris and Horus way back in Great Antiquity. Now, in the funeral ceremonies of the New Kingdom, that myth was re-enacted. 
When this part was complete, the followers of Seth lay defeated. Horus and his colleagues were triumphant. They had successfully guarded Osiris, the deceased, against any forms of destruction. When Tutmos and company had defended Osiris, or the coffin, successfully, they could move into the final phase of the funeral. At this point, Tutmos donned the quintessential garb of the Sem priest, the garment which almost every scene depicts them in. He draped leopard skin over his shoulders. This skin was worn like a cloak, with the leopard's head dangling over his belt and hooked onto his kilt. It was a splendid piece of clothing, both rare and impressive to look at. Clad in this garment of victory, Tatmos stepped forward as the Horus who defends his father. The coffin was now safe, protected from its enemies. The soul of the dead was able to eat and had been nourished with offerings. At this point, the priests were ready to take the coffin into its tomb and lay it down to rest. Before they did, they called out one last formula. Quote, As the king is pure, so let all the offerings made to your car or spirit be pure. As a god is satisfied with his offerings, let the Osiris, the deceased, be satisfied with his offerings. Welcome, O servant of Osiris, as a soul amidst the spirits, as a power in this tomb. End quote. The soul and spirit, or Ba and Ka, were now able to enter the realm of Osiris. The deceased person was both a servant of and an incarnation of the funerary god. He was worthy of respect, of veneration and offerings, and he would go into the afterlife honoured and adored. The priests outside had guided the spirit into his eternal rest. Now there is a lot of complicated theology going on in the background here, and I have simplified it horribly. These are the broad strokes of the ritual in the time of Amunhotep III. In future episodes, we will see the opening of the mouth undergo some radical changes and revisions according to the trends of social change. But around 1385, the ritual was an ornate and highly ceremonial process. It invoked ancient myths and gave the deceased great power and status in the afterlife. In the time of Amunhotep III, it was a truly elaborate rite, with as many as 75 different sections and chapters involved in the overall ceremony. Tutmos and his colleagues led the coffin into the tomb itself. At the necropolis of Memphis, this tomb took the form of a deep shaft, a pit going right down into the bedrock and leading to chambers deep underground. The coffin was lowered down this shaft, and the priests may have guided it from the bottom. Once the vessel was safely underground, the priests and porters carried it along a passageway, down another shaft, towards the hidden chamber. In the burial chamber itself, the coffin was laid to rest. The priests, including Totmos, placed flowers on its chest and uttered the final prayers of protection. At this point, we assume, porters carried in the various grave goods and arranged them around the coffin. Depending on the individual, this might be a few pots and tools and some furniture, or it could be a full assemblage of goods, like those in the tomb of Yuya and Chuyu at Thebes. Either way, it was a careful process, nothing could be damaged, and the deceased could not lack for any essentials in the afterlife. When the chamber was complete, it was time to seal the tomb. Tutmos, the priests and the porters left the hidden chamber and climbed back up the shaft. Emerging into daylight, they watched as the entrance was covered over and the hidden chamber sealed away. 
The chapel itself would continue to operate as family and priests brought offerings on special occasions. But the tomb itself was sealed and hidden. The funeral was complete. With their work done, the funeral procession made its way back to the city of Memphis and resumed the rhythm of their lives. Down below, the coffin of the deceased rested in its eternal chamber. The life of the priests was a busy one, travelling throughout Memphis and its environment. Elsewhere in the city, life had a more sedate pace. In the palace of Memphis, a young girl sat on a gilded chair. Beside her, a pile of scrolls were filled with texts, instructional works that she would learn by heart. The work was tedious, but the young girl had no choice. She was a princess of the realm, and these were her tasks. Her name was Sit Amun. Sit Amun, meaning Amun's daughter, was the eldest girl of the family. She was about 14 years old, becoming a woman now. Perhaps she spent her days reading and writing and weaving, or perhaps her time was idle. Unfortunately, we know very little about her personal life, but we do know some things about her environment. Our main source for this princess is a pair of wooden chairs, thrones, which survive today. They were buried in the tomb of Sit Amun's grandparents, Yuya and Chuyu, and when their tomb was uncovered, the furniture of Sit Amun came to light. From these pieces, we can at least say something about the princess as a public figure or icon. Sit Amun's main throne, which she used as a teenager, is a wooden piece covered in gold. The throne is carved with reliefs, images of the princess herself, of her servants, and of gods. Beneath the armrests, for example, carved panels show images of the household deities. The great lady Taweret and the impish Bess appear as guardians for the princess. These two gods, Taweret the hippo and Bess the dwarf, are emblems of protectiveness. They keep the princess safe from any danger. It's a good start. On the rear of the throne, a tableau of the princess herself is depicted. Sit Amun appears enthroned in the splendid regalia of her position. She wears a long skirt and a vest, with a golden necklace spread over her shoulders. In one hand, she carries a folded whip. In the other, Sit Amun holds a sistrum to her breast. The sistrum, like a rattle, is carved with a head of Hathor, and the princess holds it over her heart. Again, it's a protective image for the eldest princess of the realm. Sit Amun sits on her throne, wearing a heavy crown. This crown is quite interesting. It's an ornate piece made with a flat cap, out of which grow five lotus flowers. The lotuses, a symbol of growth and rebirth, seem to spring from the princess herself, capturing the essence of her role. She is a future queen, a mother-in-waiting. One day, she will be a living image of Hathor. The lotus flowers make that illusion subtly. It's not too overt, but the point is there. Or maybe it just looks nice, and we're over-analyzing it. To either side of Sit Amun, offering bearers hold up large necklaces as gifts. On other parts of the throne, more of these servants appear, bringing goods for her well-being. Coupled with the golden ornamentation, the throne of Sit Amun appears to be a glittering monument to her wealth, her station, and the sanctity of her person. It's quite interesting to see these sort of objects. 
The chair gives us a tiny glimpse behind the curtain of royal life, at what the day-to-day comforts of these people might have been like. Beyond all the glittering ostentation, there is also a really interesting question. The question of gold and where it all comes from. The servants which bring Sit Amun her gifts are accompanied by a label, a label noting that the gold is, quote, Nebu en Kasut Reshiut, the gold of the southern lands. This is a reference to Nubia, the gold mining deserts south of Egypt, and the source of the royal household's monopoly on the 79th element. It seems as though the princess, and the palace more generally, is being characterised as the ultimate recipient of all of that wealth. Now that makes sense, we know that the pharaoh personally controlled most of those resources down in the eastern deserts of Sudan, but the fact that it is evoked explicitly on the chair of a princess is quite interesting. It suggests that the general splendour and wealth of the king himself was being extended to every member of his family. In other words, the shining radiance of Amunhotep III's decadence was filtering down to the children he raised. That was going to have long-term consequences. Leaving the question of gold to the side, there is another element of Nubian origin that's quite interesting. Both the servants and the princess sport the crimped, weaved wigs, which we tend to call Nubian wigs, because they resemble Nubian hairstyles. The Nubian wigs really become popular during the mid-18th dynasty, from the reign of about Thutmose IV onwards. So the whole scene of this throne is layered with references to Nubia or Sudan, which is quite interesting for more than one reason. The references to Nubia are first and foremost a declaration of how far the palace's influence reaches. They rule everyone, and all peoples bring them great wealth. That's the basic level of interpretation. Behind that though, there is a slightly more speculative, but no less interesting level. It's entirely possible that one or more of Sit Amun's grandparents were Nubian by birth or descent. The princess's maternal grandmother, Chuyu, is almost certainly from the far south of Egypt, and quite possibly from the Nubian lands. Meanwhile, her paternal grandmother, Mut Emwia, has also been the subject of this suggestion. Historian Ariel Kozlov has suggested, quote, some scholars see Queen Mother Mut Emwia as Asiatic, but a portrait head from a statue reveals negroid features, including a short, broad nose. End quote. Unfortunately, Dr. Kozlov doesn't provide a picture of this statue, but the notion that Mut Emwia was of Afro-Nubian heritage is plausible, and it could easily be true. These questions are tantalizing. Unfortunately, there's not much to say, but it's a fascinating question. The Nubian heritage of the late 18th dynasty household really begs for some comprehensive forensic inquiry. So the throne of Sit Amun, apart from being a beautiful piece of furniture, also provides a number of references to the economic and cultural ties of the royal household under Amunhotep III. There is a lot more to be said about Amunhotep and Nubia. The king showed a particular fascination with the region. We'll return to it in a later episode. Anyways, Sit Amun spent the last years of her childhood in the quiet comfort of the royal palace. We know very little of her daily activities, but what we do know hints at a number of interesting questions. 
With no more certainty than that, we must return to the much better documented child, the Prince Tutmos. The year was now 1383 BCE, regnal year 17 of Amunhotep III. In the city of Memphis, life went on its rhythm. At the Temple of Ptah, an interesting event was underway. The great temple is gone now, only a few traces of its foundations remain. We can guess that, like most Egyptian temples, it had a large central sanctuary with smaller shrines around it. There would have been a large courtyard or two at the front, and an enclosure wall with pylons around the whole complex. It was, perhaps, much like Karnak, smaller and more condensed, but no less prestigious in its works. Within the walls of Patar's temple, priests, scribes, and craftsmen fashioned works in the name of, and for the glory of, a great creator god. Just outside the inner sanctuary of the temple, there was once a wide open space. It was fenced off, removed from the main courtyard and traffic areas. In this enclosed area, an animal pen functioned, a pen devoted to something quite special. This space was the home of Patar's avatar, the incredibly famous Apis Bull. The Apis Bull was an animal sacred to Patar. It was his earthly incarnation, a mighty symbol of the god on earth. The Apis lived a charmed life. He was housed at the temple, and there enjoyed a steady stream of food and a harem of cows on which he should sire the next incarnation. The faithful would bring him offerings, and Apis enjoyed a pampered existence. From what we know of the cult, Apis was serious business. The Apis bull had very specific features. The main one was a white diamond shape of fur on the forehead. This was essential for the bull to be identified as Patar. It is also said by Herodotus that the bull had to be entirely black, apart from that diamond. This might have been the case when he visited, but 900 years earlier, images show us the Apis bull as being both black and white. So aspects of the cult did change over time. Herodotus also tells us that the bull was mourned on the same level as a pharaoh when it died. Again, that could have been true later on, but during the 18th dynasty, the cult doesn't seem to have been quite as important as it later became. In fact, up until the reign of Amunhotep III, the Apis bull wasn't even buried. The religion of the Apis bull goes way back, back to the first dynasty around 3000 BCE. But for the first 1600 years or so, the Egyptians have not left any surviving traces of mummifying or burying the Apis bull. In fact, the earliest Apis tomb ever found dates not to the Old Kingdom, but to the reign of Amunhotep. What's more, the first Apis tomb was inaugurated by none other than our boy, Prince Tutmos. The first burial of an Apis bull took place around 1383 BCE. When this Apis died, the heart, head, and organs were mummified. They were taken for burial and placed in a great tomb west of Memphis. This tomb was located on the desert's edge, near the old pyramids of Teti, Userkaf, and Netjeriket Djoser. The great crypts were under a huge stone platform, 
You go down a passageway into a somewhat labyrinthine vault. There, in the glimmer of torches, you find huge rooms cut into the bedrock. Each room holds a vast sarcophagus, weighing up to 70 tons each. In those sarcophagi, the remains of the apis bulls rest. Of course, most of the animal mummies are long gone. What survives are a few heads and some canopic jars holding the bull's organs. It seems that the head and the organs were the only parts which the Egyptians kept. For these are the only parts discovered when the Serapeum was opened and its contents excavated. We're not sure why they didn't mummify the whole body. It's possible that the body was consumed in a ritual feast. But what is clear is that during the 18th dynasty, the Egyptians only kept a few parts. These were the parts that they buried. Around 1383 BCE, Regnal year 17, the first known burial of an apis bull was performed. Prince Totmos was about 14 years old. He was entering manhood by their standards. He came as a priest of Ptah, a Sem priest, ready to conduct the funeral. Like the earlier funerals he had led, he came as a protector of the dead and one who opened its mouth. It's quite likely that he performed the opening of the mouth ceremony on the apis bull as well. After all, bulls need food and water too. So Tutmos donned the leopard skin, recited the invocations and prayers, and awakened the faculties of the apis bull. After this, he and his father carried the canopic jars into the tomb. We actually have a trace of this in picture form, a block of stone carved with the prince's image, which was found in the apis tomb. Tutmos appears holding the canopic jar, while wearing a leopard skin to denote his rank. In front of him, a trace of his father appears, wearing the crown of Lower Egypt. Tutmos wears no crown, only the garb of a high-ranking priest. Clearly, he is overshadowed by his father, who is much taller and more imposing. Tutmos is depicted as a secondary figure, and yet it is his image that survives the best. Irony. In the original scene, Tutmos and Amunhotep made their offerings to a statue of the Apis Bull, or perhaps even to an image of Ptah. They offered up the vessels and invoked prayers for the well-being of Apis in the afterlife. Remarkably, those vessels or canopic jars exist, and they survive to this day. A series of canopic jars discovered in the tomb carry the titles of Prince Tutmos. He is named as priest, eldest son of the king, etc., etc., the jars are a remarkable find, all things considered. They are a silent testimony of ritual and solemn observance more than 3,000 years old. They are also one of our few physical connections with the crown prince of the two lands. There is another physical trace of the prince, but I'll cover that in the epilogue to this episode. Tutmos and his father conducted the funeral for the apis bull in the cramped confines of the subterranean crypt. They placed the head of the bull in its sarcophagus, along with the canopic jars. Then, they sealed it away, closing the vault behind them. One day, they would return to bury the next apis bull. It seems that in the lifetime of Amunhotep III, at least two apis bulls died. So, he would be back. The apis crypt would see the pharaoh again. The king and the prince closed the apis vault and returned to the city of Memphis. Life went back to its regular pattern. Tutmos, the Sem priest, officiated in rituals and observed the solemn rites of Ptah's temple. The pharaoh went back to governing, and watching his son's education. 
Eventually, the day came when Tutmos was old enough and experienced enough to take on more responsibility. This moment, perhaps, came around 1380 BCE. In that year, the 20th regnal year of Amunhotep III, Tutmos was given a great honour. The high priest of Ptah, named Tamos, had died some years before. Now, the temple was getting a new high priest. Can you guess who? Yeah. Crown Prince Tutmos, son of the king, ascended to the rank of Wer Kerep Chem, which translates as Great Leader Priest, but we tend to render it as High Priest. Tutmos, all of 17 years old or so, rose to one of the highest religious offices in the two lands. The eldest son of the pharaoh had now truly arrived. At a young age he was invested with the solemn responsibilities of office and the power of a high priest. It was all part of the finest traditions of Egyptian nepotism. The prince went from being a middle-rank sem-priest to the chief of the whole temple. Quite the promotion, all things considered. Now, to be clear, the dates of all of these events are shadowy at best. I've put them into their likely order, but the exact timings of everything are uncertain. Despite these gaps, we do have a remarkably detailed account of a prince's rise to power. We can see the general order of his career, the promotions he received, and thanks to some lucky preservations, we can see the rituals in which he participated. Add to that some educated guesses, and the princes from some other royal families, and we can describe Tutmos's rise to supremacy quite well. The prince started out, like any other child of nobility, as a minor functionary in a prestigious temple. But he quickly rose with new responsibilities coming to him as opportunities opened up. Eventually, the young man was able to take on the greatest possible task, the oversight and leadership of a supremely important temple. This was nothing less than a declaration of the king's trust. Totmos was worthy, and one day he would inherit the crown of the king. All hail the prince. We now come to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining me. Once again, stick around afterwards for a short epilogue. Quite a delightful one, in my opinion. Next episode, we continue our accelerated journey through Amunhotep's reign. From 1380 down to 1370 BCE, the third decade of his power was, again, a poorly recorded time. But we can still see that a lot happened. For one thing, it seems that Egypt was struck with a calamity. Somewhere around 1380, the land of the Nile began to suffer a prolonged bout of plague. This epidemic would sweep the region and carry many souls off to the underworld. Before it ended, even the gods of foreign lands would be coming to Egypt's aid. Join me soon for episode 99, Four Funerals and a Wedding. Right now, the epilogue to today's episode, which follows after the break. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. 
This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. We've learned a lot about royal children today, in particular the lifestyles and responsibilities of Princess Sita Mun and Prince Tutmos. Well, in one more little treat, we can see a tiny trace of the prince's home life. How? Well. Go to the Cairo Museum today, and you might walk past a small stone sarcophagus. It is an unobtrusive thing, a rectangular box with a triangle roof. Its edges are decorated with hieroglyphs, the main faces are decorated with gods, and an image of the deceased sitting before a table of offerings. For all intents and purposes, this box is identical to the sarcophagus of any wealthy individual. There is just one difference. The deceased, sitting in front of her feast, is not human. She is a cat. Prince Tutmos was a pet owner. He had a cat, a sweet little feline, And when that cat died, the prince arranged for her a respectable burial. This little sarcophagus is the last resting place of Prince Tutmos's kitty. The cat's name was Ta-Meet, aka She-Cat. The Egyptian word for cat is Mew, which incidentally gives the land of the pharaohs a wonderful connection to the world of Pokemon. Tutmos simply gave his cat the feminine version of the word Mew, and thus Ta-Meet, royal kitty cat, got her name. When Ta-Meet died, perhaps during that plague which was coming after year 20, Tutmos commissioned a sarcophagus for her burial. It was expensive, made of limestone, polished smooth, and carved with glyphs and images. The coffin is basically a miniature version of a human casket. The same gods appear, Nephthys and Isis who give their lamentations, and the four sons of Horus, Harpy, Imseti, Duamutef, and Kebesenwef. They all provide the cat with protection in her journey to the afterlife. The idea that she, a cat, would actually make it there is guaranteed by the hieroglyphs. Here we see wonderful texts invoking the great gods and referring to Tarmit as none other than Osiris herself. Quote, Words spoken by the Osiris, Tarmit. I bristle before the sky and its parts that are upon it. I myself am placed among the imperishable ones that are in the sky. I am Tamit, true of voice. Words spoken by Osiris. Tamit is not tired, nor weary is her body. She is true of voice before the great god. End quote. All across the sarcophagus, words and images convey Tutmose's wish that Tamit, his little cat, would make her way to the afterlife, and there be welcomed into the realm of Osiris. It is a wonderful piece, truly exceptional, and heartwarming as well. 
Of course, you can see images on the podcast website. It is a genuinely beautiful work. The sarcophagus of Tarmit was discovered at Memphis. It was probably buried by the prince in the animal cemetery west of the city. The sarcophagus is a small thing, just 64 centimetres long. A tiny work, but made with wonderful care. The limestone was polished with sand and stone, and you can still see the horizontal marks of the sculptor's chisels. The images themselves are carved with care and attention, and Tarmit, sitting before a pile of offerings, looks quite happy indeed. I hope she still is. The History of Egypt podcast is supported by Online Great Books, an online course with one simple goal, to help you engage with the books that changed history. Develop a habit of connecting with great works in an easy program of just a few hours reading per week. Online Great Books uses the Socratic method focused on discussion to help you engage and make your philosophical upskilling a breeze. The course curates a selection of great and classic works of philosophy. They select the best translations and will ship the hard copy to you for easy reading. From there, it's an easy-to-understand journey as they guide you through the development of books which changed their worlds. The course is designed to help you stay on track with tools like text or email reminders, simple, achievable weekly goals, and a supportive community to help you reach your personal development aims. Visit onlinegreatbooks.com forward slash EGY and enter the promo code EGY to get 25% off your first three months. That affiliate code will also help this podcast pay its bills, so you'll be helping me out too. Remember, enrollment is limited, so don't skip out on the opportunity. Check it out at onlinegreatbooks.com forward slash EGY. Hope to see you there. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.